digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Bonjour, welcome, welcome in. Okay, uh, weird. And uh, TJ2, the deuce. Oh, there it is. What are we having today? Mm. Okay, so you'll get a, an authentic reaction. This is the first time I've ever had this one. This one is called the Big Blood Orange India Pale Ale from Sugar Creek. Huh, I haven't had that one. I've had Blood Orange. No, I, I, it's... um. There's a, a little place that's opened in the, the town I work uh, that it's kind of a bar, but they have a few boutique food items they sell, and they have some nice craft beers and a nice selection of wine, and I it's a neat place, and I would like it to stay open, so I go I go there most Fridays and buy a couple um, yeah. to bring home, usually ones I haven't tried, and this is the first time I've had this one. Nice. 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 Mm. I can report that uh, Sugar Creek, the big blood orange India pale ale is tasty. Mm. Excellent. Very well. This will be my final comment on this matter. So the only uh, sad news that we have to report on is not musical one, but it's definitely a Southern one, which is Olympia Dukakis. uh, And she was in the seminal film, Steel Magnolias, which you are forced to watch at the age of four and once every year until you die if you're from- In school or they don't let you graduate. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how that is the case in the southeastern U.S., but if you go to the northeast, it's Moonstruck yeah. with the same actress. So. Yep. Right. So. With Olympia Dukakis. Yes, that was that was one yesterday that uh, actually upset my wife because she's probably seen Steel Magnolias seven or 8,000 times. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's just a southern thing. Like, Will had never seen it till I forced him to watch it. And you it, still have not seen Moonstruck. I have not. It's sort of a deal where it's like Steel Magnolias is to my wife as tombstone is to me Mm. like in Mm. terms of how many times she's seen it her ability to quote lengthy portions of dialogue without any prompt of any kind and of course she's a central figure in that olympia dukakis was so that that's very sad yeah uh the she's she's fantastic she had such a cool voice so r.i.p uh we're gonna miss you uh you're contributions to films were great and that yeah that really really bummed me out when i heard about it so yeah so uh, who are we talking about today, or who are, who are we still talking about today? <laughs> right, we are in uh, part two of our series on the late, great Rick James, bitch. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and put this out there, guys. This is not for kids. <laughs> this is Rick James. This is Rick James. This is one of those episodes where I'm like, maybe uh, if you have anybody under 13 in your car, don't let them listen to this. This, under, is, this is this is very mature. If they're under twenty three, it's probably. Well, oh, I, oh, I beg to differ. It's quite immature in many ways. Mm. As, as uh, it yes, mentioned last is, week's recording. Yes, there's um, there's lots of drugs and naked people and cussing. So, I mean, if that's a thing that offends you, whatever age you are, then I would say just join us for our next series, and maybe it'll be better. I think it will be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that starts out. With I don't know. I don't know who's daughter. to come, but I don't know who's to come. I doubt they get naked and do drugs quite as often as Rick. So did well. anyone? And and I also don't know that we will feel the need to punctuate their name with bitch every time we say it. So I well, knowing who's next, I hope not. 
So, um, yeah, but this is part two of uh, what will probably be a three-part series on Rick James. Now, in part one of our series, we left off with him having put out his first actual proper single, that being My Mama, which was a club hit in Europe. He'd already lived a pretty wild life despite only being in his 20s. That included losing his virginity at nine, evading military service by fleeing to Canada, briefly being in a band with Neil Young, riding bumper cars while stoned on LSD with Jim Morrison, <laughs> narrowly avoid, avoiding being a casualty of the Manson family murders, and discovering, quote, fully realized freakery with a Swedish model and her mother. And he's only 16. <laughs> yeah, 22 or 23? he's in it he's he's only in his 20s at this point yeah uh the best or the worst i guess depending on your perspective was yet to come uh now james had been pursuing a career in music since his early teens but major success had continued to evade him he bounced between los angeles detroit and his hometown of buffalo starting a number of bands but with limited success being a struggling musician is many things but lucrative and high paying are not on the list so, James worked as a drug runner, bringing shipments to America from India and South America. Ooh, international. Yep. It was something of a family business, though, unwittingly, as he actually used one of his brothers as a mule, hiding a very large supply of drugs in his bags. Was his brother a willing mule? No. Oh, no. His brother, no, his brother didn't know that he'd done it. Wow. Yeah, so... Yes, said brother was unaware of it at the time, and he was supremely unhappy when he found out about it, as you might imagine. Yes. Now, anybody who is engaged in the otherworldly level of drugs, booze, sex, and general debauchery that we've already mentioned, while also hitting one brick wall after another chasing a dream, is obviously going to bottom out at some point, and that did happen to Rick James. In his posthumous biography, Glow, he details that in early 1978, fresh off a lengthy drug and sex bender, he was standing next to his kitchen table with a loaded pistol pressed to his head. Whoa. He was ready to end it. He isn't exactly sure why, but at some point he had a change of heart and he put the gun down. After that incident, well, there really wasn't a change in his behavior, just to be honest with you, but there was a big change for the better coming in terms of his career. James continued to bounce around geographically, but he was primarily hubbed in his hometown of Buffalo at this point and had put together the Stone City Band. In late, in late 1977, the band signed with Motown imprint label Gordy Records and started working on an album at the record plant in New York. And just now, as you know, this is not the only time we're going to be talking about Gordy in like the next four weeks. Oh, no, he's going to come uh, up. Uh, no, well, no, quite. he comes up a couple of times in this one and, I, and probably in the next series to come. Yep. Um, so they were working at the record plant in New York. Now, obviously, that was a well-known studio and one in which a lot of popular acts recorded. And this is where we veer back into the place where James is basically a hypersexual, drugged-out version of Forrest Gump, just crossing the path of every celebrity and historic event that you can possibly imagine. It, ch <laughs> it changes the movie poster in your mind. Here yes, it, do it sure does. While at work on that album, Aerosmith frontman Steven Tyler wandered in and listened to a song that James and his band were working on. Hang on, I need a, I, hey, TJ, I need a uh, noun. And I need what? a verb and an action and a proper noun. And a musician. Because you're just building a life with Mad Libs again. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Yes. Took me a second to catch where you were going. Yes, completely. Oh, but it gets better. <laughs> so 
so Stephen Tyler walks in and listens to a song that James and his band are working on. James said that Tyler exclaimed, quote, this is the effing bomb. At that point, James claims that Tyler produced a gigantic bag of cocaine. What are we talking about? Like a gallon bag and, or like trash and, bag? And a Bowie knife. He huh. dipped the knife into the bag, then proceeded to snort about two grams of the booger sugar directly off the blade before very considerately asking James if he'd like some. Huh. If yes, was the response. Bring it up for the so, whole class, right? So, um, so Rick James and Stephen Tyler in the record plant were snorting cocaine off the blade of a Bowie knife, which I think tracks pretty much with part one of our series. Because honestly, in that, you, you didn't say what size the bag was, but in my head, it's a Ziploc. It's like a trash bag. It's like a Glad trash bag, just right. full of booger sugar. Like with the two it, ties? The yes. Like, to, me, to, to me, it's like um, the bag tied to a stick that hobos would always carry around in old cartoons. A bindle? <laughs> Is that what those are called? Yes. Okay. <laughs> So just Steven Tyler walking the railroad tracks with a bag of coke tied to a stick. Yeah, playing a harmonica, probably. That, yeah, that, that, that tracks. Um, Why is I can two, see that in my head? That's... Yes, I, I can, I've, I've, I've already pictured it in my head. <laughs> Whip out my big 10 inch! The, the two uh, would apparently go on to be rehab buddies later on, with Tyler often riding Rick around piggyback style during recovery meetings. <laughs> Quote, he's the one cat who can out-talk me and actually make those meetings fun, James recounted in his memoir. Half of what he says is bullshit, but his bullshit is so brilliant, I don't care if it's true or not, he said of Tyler. Wow. I mean, hey, okay, just go, keep going. Keep <laughs> going. I got nothing. I can't. It's it's all bottlenecking. Yep. It's got like 8,000 things I need to say, but it's like a bum rush through my throat. Sort of, and yeah. It, it, nothing's coming out. Well, in April of 1978, James, backed by the Stone City Band, released his first full solo album, Come Get It. The record was a surprise hit and eventually sold 2 million copies. Now, there's a certain prestige, I think we can agree, uh, at this time in particular, that came along with being associated with Motown. But that label was actually in a rough spot financially in the late 1970s, with a lot of its biggest artists having begun to fade from popularity at that time. The label needed a breakout hit and found it in James and the music that he would go on to dub Punk Funk. He had a top 20 hit with You and I, which got to number one on the R&B charts, actually. Oh, wow. but there's another song on that record that we're going to play now. The song Mary Jane wasn't as big a hit, but it is probably better known than You and I at this point. Now, probably the reason the song wasn't a bigger pop hit than it was, reaching just number 41 on the charts, is because it is very clearly about smoking marijuana. <laughs> What? Now, now, lyrically, there is about a millimeter of gray area where one could try to argue that Rick is singing about a girl. But James would undercut that himself on stage by singing the song flanked on either side by comically oversized fake joints. So like like Left Shark with Katy Perry, but it's just weed? Right, right. It's right. Very much like the Sharks, but um, but joints. And I don't know if they were dancing or not, but in my mind, they were giant dancing joints. Hi, kids. I'm a big fat doobie and I want you to smoke me. I really wish that's what actually happened. Oh, my God. Um, and, and he would do that whilst taking exaggerated huge draws off of actual joints on stage. Yeah. So let's hear that song now. Here is Rick James and Mary Jane. <laughs> 
to it then. Okay, uh, so what did you guys think of that one? That's very different from what we heard from James in part one, which was a lot of a lot of it, much more. You could almost call a couple of those folk rock that we heard in part one, and some some 
funk e rock, but it, it was all had a foot in rock. That didn't sound anything like anything we heard in part one. Well, uh, you guys heard when I was talking when we were listening to the song is like, I swear to you, I know I knew this song. And it was because it was sampled a ton of times, mm-hmm. specifically on uh, Jennifer Lopez's I'm Real song. And okay. so like immediately when I when we played the song, like two seconds in, I'm like, this is so familiar. And that's why is because I actually know the song from Jennifer Lopez sampling it. Right. Sounded like people to me. A, a little bit. And and as we mentioned in part one, you know, George Clinton often accused Rick James of appropriating parts of uh Parliament sound and some of their songs into his own. So mm. that may, maybe that's a coincidence that you think it sounds like that and maybe it ain't. <laughs> mm. Fair maybe enough. it's quite, maybe that's quite by design on, on Rick's part. <laughs> okay, so in terms of the live show that James would put on. He didn't want to just sing to his audience. He wanted to, and I'm quoting now, pimp them. That meant that they had to do exactly as he said. So if he told them to put their hands in the air, they were to put their hands in the air. If I remember correctly, he he has experience as a pimp. He has experience in being an actual pimp. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Limited experience. He found the the whole ordeal a bit too inhuman for him. Now, pimping wasn't easy. Pimpin' was not as easy as he imagined it would be. If he did a call-out, they were to repeat it back to him. He also wanted an over-the-top stage show. Now, he had apparently been to a KISS concert by this time and said, quote, I'm going to give the kids in the ghetto what white folks see all the time. That meant adding a fellow to his entourage by the name of Pyro John. <laughs> um, okay, he's got the greatest name ever. Pretty much. Now... No one knows his actual name. <laughs> he was just this big burly dude who they called Pyro John that okay. would rig up explosives on stage that were so loud, band members said that it sounded like bombs going off. <laughs> That's awesome. There would be mammoth pretend joints, as I've already mentioned, and real ones that Rick would uh, smoke. Which were actually smaller than the ones that were dancing on stage, right? Probably so, but a lot more than those things got sparked up on occasion. Pyro John, Pyro John rigged up a contraption that spewed sparks out the end of James's guitar. Now, the, sh- the shower of sparks it would launch certainly got people's attention, especially on one occasion when it set, ri- uh, set Rick James's cape on fire. Oh my God. Is anyone else picturing that dude from the Muppets that blows everything up? Weird, weird. Yes. Weird Harry, no, yeah. No, 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 crazy, crazy Harry. Crazy Harry, yeah. That's crazy our picture with Pyro John. Yeah. Um, with so much else happening on stage, though, the audience apparently thought it was just just part of the show. <laughs> they had no idea that Rick James was actually on fire and didn't mean that. <laughs> um, he did manage to ditch his cape before being seriously hurt in that particular instance. Uh, James also wanted to add some literal sparkle to the appearance of he and his band. So he started sprinkling massive amounts of glitter in their hair and on their clothes. That, but that's in the Super Freak video too, right? Like it, it is, it yeah. is. But band members complained that it was impossible to get the stuff off. With one saying that he would find bits of glitter in his saxophone case decades later. It also <laughs> yeah, no, to... no, glitter is glitter is literally the herpes of the crafting world, and uh, there's, there's there's actually. This stuff called eco glitter now, which washes off. So, 
So does that make like thumbtacks the gonorrhea? How, what what's the hierarchy of these things? Yeah. Yeah, thumbtacks gonorrhea. That's a good one. Okay. That's a good one. And herpes is glitter. Herpes is glitter. It won't ever go away. It keeps and, coming And so back. Elmer's glue is like the clap, right? I mean, because it comes off really, really easily. Just yeah, like... yeah. Um, the uh, the that all that glitter though also apparently led to some death threats from a lot of pissed off husbands and boyfriends who would often find glitter on the naughty bits of their lady friends after they returned from shows. Oh my, that's awesome. Having a hit at the time, especially one uh, that people could dance to, usually meant that you earned yourself a spot on American Bandstand with Dick Clark, and that is exactly what you and I got, James. Oh, no. However, however, uh, as we would all learn many years later, cocaine is a hell of a drug, and James hoovered an ungodly quantity backstage before coming out to perform on American Bandstand. Now, Like, like we're talking about, like, Dick Clark uh-huh. and American wholesome teenage yep. youth wearing like Letterman sweaters and doing yep. like the monkey. Oh, yep. here we go. Oh, dear. Yep. Doing the mashed potato and such as that. Yeah. So, so oh, Rick no. James hoovers up an unholy amount of cocaine right before he walks out. Now, by all accounts, he delivered a great performance and probably nobody would have been the wiser about the illicit white fuel that he imbibed prior to the broadcast. Except that Dick Clark then invited him over for a lengthy interview. <laughs> Quote, I started sniffing and wiping myself until it had to be very obvious to Dick and a million viewers what was really going on, said James, <laughs> who did call Clark, quote, one of the nicest cats I ever met. Aww. But, yeah, he so, and I, I, I think you can actually find that on YouTube, and it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on. <laughs> It's like, you're either allergic somehow to stage lights or you just did a lot of coke. But it's one of those things. Has to be yeah. one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Right around this time, James and his band moved for a while out of a Holiday Inn in Hollywood into the Randolph Hearst Mansion. Huh. Which is quite a step up um, provided to them by, uh, by Barry Gordy. I wonder if it was around Holiday Inn. Yeah, um, I wonder. Yeah. Like the one in Charleston that has I, the pool like up outdoors on the third floor. Oh, the place is awesome. Well, no, there's a there's on the 405. There's an iconic Holiday Inn. Yeah, uh, round, that's yeah. that's uh, round. Well, there's so there's like, one in Charleston, South Carolina, too. Is there a round one? Yeah, sure is. Yeah, I, I wonder if uh, if that's a beacon of each city. You know, I don't know. We used to stay there a long time ago, though. Did we? Um, uh, no, no, no. Like like me, Dad, Mary, that side of the family, we, oh, okay. we would often stay there. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Band member Levi Ruffin said, quote, Rick was always freaking shit out to the crib. It was cool. We were all grown. What? What so, is that? What, what were those words you just put together? Levi Ruffin said, quote, Rick was always freaking shit out to the crib. It was cool. We were all grown. Okay. Now, do you have a... Can somebody... Yeah, I'm, I'm really old. Can somebody, like, translate what I just said? Where's that woman that spoke jive on the plane? On airplane? <laughs> I need that. I need that lady. And I'm not cool enough to know what he's saying. Chump don't want no help. Chump don't get no help. <laughs> um, so in this sprawling 21-room estate that Ruffin said, quote, was like a effing castle, marble shit here, winding stairways, all kinds of beautiful shit. James partied with lots of booze, lots of drugs, and large crowds of naked people cavorting in a pool. <laughs> One of those people was the daughter of NFL legend turned actor Jim Brown. Oh, wow. 
Now, band members allege there was nothing at all going on between James and Brown's daughter that they knew of. Still, though, Brown was pissed, and when he showed up on the premises, James, quote, vanished. Just the presence of Jim Brown coming in the house scared Rick to death, and it would have me too. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't blame the man for that. Yeah. Um, James also took the entire band uh, right around this time to a custom boots uh, store and spent $35,000 outfitting them. In the years to come, as the cash poured in, he would pursue spending money with the same fervor he did chasing drugs and girls. It was not uncommon for him to give his band $80,000 in cash for a shopping spree here and there. Wow. He he himself would splurge in years to come on a fleet of high-end cars, Cartier watches, and a different suit for every day of the year. In 1979, Rick James released his second solo album, one called Bustin' Out of L7 that went platinum, and he dropped the gold album, Fire It Up, later in the year. By this time, he was becoming a popular tour draw and headliner, so he decided to bring an opening act out with him. He chose a young solo artist who had just been booted from a Rolling Stones tour because, to be blunt, their audiences hated him. He would pair a bit better with James and his audience, though. That was a fellow that you all have likely heard of that went by the name Prince. Wow. Now, Mike Judge's excellent show, Tales from the Tour Bus, which I cannot recommend enough to everybody. He did two seasons. One was a bunch of, where he he did a bunch of country artists, and then one where he did a bunch of R&B artists. They're both phenomenal i I, that's one of the my favorite things i've ever watched i cannot recommend you watch that enough did he cover whalen and the dynamite he did one yep he did in the country season he covered whalen and the dynamite and the cocaine and um tying george jones up to a tree and all that kind of fun stuff (laughs) and a bunch of other people and then in the r&b season he did one on james brown and he did one on rick james Well, he takes a very deep look in that series into what quickly became a rivalry between Prince and Rick James. Now, Rick himself picked Prince, handpicked him to come on the road with him. Quote, he was a little softer, but that shit was funky. And that shit was completely different, said uh, said Stone City Band saxophone player Daniel LaMille. Stone City Band member Levi Ruffin said Prince joined the tour in Dallas. The first time he saw the purple one was at a party. Quote, this little bitty son of a bitch walks in and I said, GD, he's tiny. He was down to here and he had on pink high heel effy shoes. Stunning. Lamel <laughs> said Prince was much more familiar to and liked at that point by white audiences, whereas James attracted more of a black audience. But Lamel said James was smart enough to realize that having someone draw in new, a new and different crowd was actually a good thing. Now, James, and I want to put, put this in all caps and and put bunny ears around it, claimed after the fact that he was not at all impressed with Prince's stage show. He said that Prince never introduced himself and that his band was stuck up. He also said that in early performances, Prince just stood there and sang, dropping the trench coat he was wearing at the end of the performance to to reveal that he was wearing women's bloomers underneath. He said, quote, I felt sorry for the cat and deemed his show, quote, lame. He He claims that after watching... James perform, however, Prince began to appropriate his stage moves, like flipping the mic, putting his hand over his ear after he did call-outs, and doing funk chants. He basically insinuated that Prince was a poser and a copycat who stole his act. In Tales from the the Tour Bus, other Stone City uh, band members gave varying accounts of what actually happened. Ruffin said, quote, 
I like the son of a bitch. He was funky as hell to me, but Rick used to get mad and tell me, quote, that little mother effer got me working hard because he was a bad little mother effer, man. He was funky. I think we need to do an episode on Levi Ruffin. <laughs> uh, Levi Ruffin, if, if you have seen the Tales from the Tour Bus on Rick James, is the star. He is the funniest <laughs> dude you've ever heard. He's awesome. So a rivalry was budding. James would stand off stage and watch Prince, uh, every Prince performance. And Prince would stand off stage and watch every James performance. Ruffin said, though, the James show was a bigger hit with the mostly black audiences that they were playing to at the time. Quote, nine times out of ten, when we got finished with our show, people forgot who the F the opening act was. We used to kick his little mother effing ass every night. We're blowing up shit on stage, pyrotechnics and shit, bitches and whatnot. We had ballerinas dancing for us. <laughs> that is my favorite quote ever in the history of quotes. The last sentence. We had we ballerinas. We were blowing up shit on stage, pyrotechnics and shit, bitches and whatnot. We had ballerinas dancing for us. <laughs> Oh, my. I, I can't. <laughs> Bitches and whatnot. Is that a haiku? <laughs> I think it might be. <laughs> you have to say, I mean, you have to go count, but yeah, probably. <laughs> okay. Uh, though, they, though, they, though they didn't really seem to like each other, and they would essentially be competitors for years to come, Prince and his band crashed James's 32nd birthday party in 1980. Quote, I went over to his table grabbed him by the back of his hair, poured cognac down his throat. He spat it out and started crying like a baby. I laughed, bitch, James said. <laughs> oh, my God. So, so Rick James grabbed Prince by the hair, bent it back, poured Quavacia down his throat till he spit it out, then called him a bitch. That, that tracks. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Here's the thing. Huh? You know, we laugh about this, but that's kind of a dick move because he is a Jehovah's Witness. Prince. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't think that they drink, do they? No, no, no. They, I, no, no, they're not supposed. I, I, mean, I don't believe they do. Now, I don't know if Prince was at this point. Was he born into that faith, I, or did he find it later? I don't. I don't know. I do know that he was doing it. Like he would go, he would proselyte door to door. Yeah. So he would do it la later in life, but like, so did Michael so like, Jackson. Right? That's kind of a dick move, if. He was a Jehovah's Witness. At if he was point. a Jehovah's Witness at that point, yeah, that's yeah. like giving. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's like giving. That's, that's like giving Mormons caffeine. Like you just like, right. Yeah, uh, no, this is decaf coffee. Right. That's it's kind of the same thing. That would be yeah, crazy. I would right. argue Rick James probably didn't care. I know uh, Rick James didn't care, and you know, don't don't be crashing people's parties. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, Prince. I'm really sorry to interrupt you right now, T, but we actually have to take a break for our sponsors, and we will be right back. And we're back. All right. We're back to talk more about Rick James. James took his mother to the after party thrown by Dick Clark. At some point, his mother, who collected autographs, uh, told him that she had run into Prince elsewhere um, in the building and had asked for an autograph but that he turned and walked away from her, not even acknowledging her. James claimed that was all he needed to hear and that he, quote, chased after that little turd. James found Prince and apparently was about to beat his ass when Prince's manager stepped in to try to ease tensions. Prince said he didn't know who James's mother was, to which James reportedly responded, quote, well, now you know, mother effer. Prince apologized to James and his mother. James said he really didn't want James to do, or Prince to do that because, quote, I really did want to kick his ass. 
Now, one last indignity, and I guess maybe act of thievery that James alleges Prince perpetrated was cribbing an idea that he had mentioned in passing about starting an all-girl group. Prince apparently stole one of James's girlfriends, that being a little-known model and actress named Denise Matthews. You probably know her better by her stage name, which was Vanity. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Around, yep. yep, around her, Prince formed the band Vanity Six. For his part, Prince said that he wanted to start an all-girl group for a number of years and that he didn't steal the idea from James. Of course, now James would put together his own all-girl group as well in 1983, one that kind of eschewed the idea of girl groups always dressing the same and projecting a singular image and personality. His group, the Mary Jane Girls, featured one, quote, streetwise girl, a, quote, cheerleader slash ballet girl, a slash supermodel, and, quote, a dominatrix. So they had kind of hit. like uh, Spice Girls? Almost. Yeah, the precursor to the Spice Girls. It's, it's kind of, a, yeah, it kind of is, but without a dominatrix. <laughs> they might have scrapped that one. I don't remember a dominatrix in the Spice Girls, but, you know. Uh, actually, Jerry, I do believe, did adult films. Okay, well, I mean, that doesn't make her a dominatrix, though. Yeah, so, but they, they were, because most girl groups, you have to think about, you know, the Supremes or the whoever's. And they all dressed the same and had the syncopated dance moves and stuff. And he he wanted one where all of them had their own personality. Now, probably a fake one that he assigned to them, but still. Streetwise Girl, Valley Girl, Supermodel, and Dominatrix. The Mary Jane Girls had one hit. They are officially a one-hit wonder. That being the top 10 smash in my house. Interestingly, that song was listed among the, quote, Filthy 15 list published by Tipper Gore's group of bored, tight-assed housewives that called themselves the Parent, <laughs> Parents Music Resource Council because it had, quote, overtly sexual content. Huh? The, Mary the Mary Jane girls claim that the song is actually about love but not about sex. So even though we're jumping ahead here a little bit in terms of the actual timeline, we'll be backing up in a second. But let's listen to that song, which was written, arranged, and produced by Rick James. Here are the Mary Jane girls with their one top 40 hit, In My House.
And we're back. Okay, so just real quick, and both of y'all were familiar with that song, obviously, because it was a huge hit in the 1980s. You yeah. y'all were not familiar that, that didn't realize that Rick had a hand in that one. Not no, a clue. not at all. Yeah, he he wrote it, arranged it, and produced it. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, that's a banger. Love it. Um, so I looked it up on uh, YouTube, and okay. here, here's the disparity. Disparity. What is a disparity? Shut up. <laughs> There's a disparity in the likes to dislikes ratio. Mm-hmm. The like ratio is seventeen thousand. Um, it has been viewed one point two million times. Wait, we talking about only, the video for this? Yes, and there's only okay. 285 dislikes. There's 1.1 thousand comments. Okay. All of them overwhelmingly positive, and apparently it was used in an episode of a Ryan, oh gosh, what's Ryan's last name? Murphy? Yes. It was, it was used in a Ryan Murphy TV show called Pose. Restaurant? Okay, stop yelling stuff, Travis. Ryan's restaurant. Okay. Is it Ryan's? Nope, I'm just gonna stop talking. Okay. It was used in some show or thing. Yeah, it was used in a Ryan Murphy show. If it's used in Ryan Murphy show, you're opening it up to, I'm not joking, millions of new listeners because oh, okay. he is he's a phenomenal creator. Like he created seminal shows like glee and he created uh popular he created pose he created american horror story uh scream queens i believe he did ratchet so like he's done these massive uh, oh he did the people versus oj simpson and the murder of gianni versace so like he brings in a massive audience so okay uh just as recently as two years ago people were in this video on youtube and, and, and obviously, a song like that that was such a, a big hit when it was is going to get a lot of recurrent radio airplay because the, quote, 80s are a radio format now. Yep. And, and, and there, there's uh, people have this odd affinity for one-hit wonders, which they legitimately were one. So yeah, that was the Mary Jane Girls with the song Rick uh, wrote, arranged, and produced in my house. So let's back up just a little bit. Now, we talked about one person, that being Prince, who would be a big figure in the life of Rick James. Well, Rick met another one in the late 1970s. James's first album was out and selling very well, and Motown saw him as the valuable commodity that he was. In fact, they hoped that the magic he seemed to have captured would rub off on some other label artists. So he was working on writing and producing a bunch of songs for a new album by Diana Ross. Wow. As he was in the Motown studios one day, though, he overheard a woman belting her lungs out with more passion than he'd ever heard before. Intrigued, he went to investigate, only to find, quote, this little munchkin white girl. Never in my life had I heard such a range with so much passion. I heard this girl singing her ass off. I said, wow, you're really great. Are you on Motown? The then 20-year-old singer was signed to the label uh, and was one of the only white artists on the roster at the time. Had been for two years, but had never actually released anything. James was smitten with her in every sense and immediately dumped the planned album with Ross, giving the songs that he was working on to, quote, that little munchkin white girl who went by the name Tina Marie. The relationship oh, wow. between, Yep. The, two, the relationship between the two would be very musical. It would be sexual, but only for a little while. And long-lasting, though there were fits and starts for many years. 
The batch of songs he intended to do with Ross turned into her 1979 album, Wild and Peaceful. That album didn't feature a picture of Marie on it. I found this interesting. And apparently radio programmers and many fans just assumed that she was black, even though she was, quote, a little munchkin white girl. Um, That myth was actually laid to rest when she was invited to perform on Soul Train for the first time in 1979, becoming the first white female artist to ever do so. I feel like that's really good trivia to have. I think so. She and James scored a top 10 R&B hit with I'm a Sucker for Your Love. They had another duet uh, that was a hit a few years later, and we're going to hear that one right now. This is a song that was allegedly written about their very short-lived fling. This is Rick James and Tina Marie singing Fire and Desire.
were just discussing the song as it played. I think we all really liked it, but I think we all also agreed it could have been like two minutes shorter and not been any the worse. Yeah, and there's a there's a little bit of a difference between the view count on this one and the view count on the other one, which is at this point that hasn't been shown on a Ryan Murphy TV show. Uh, so this has only got eighty seven thousand views. Oh, wow! And, Interesting. And uh, it's got a hundred and what one point seven k likes and thirty nine dislikes. Whoops. Only thirty nine. Yeah, only thirty nine. But uh, there you is go. There any vid- is there any video in the history of YouTube that somebody hasn't disliked for some reason just because they're a prick or I mean, like like a no, video that is uni- universally loved? The, yeah, right. Yeah, I don't. Somebody I, always has to be a prick and dislike it just just yeah. to, just to be the one guy that disliked it. Yep. Okay, so uh, that was Rick James and Tina Marie. Who can? Rick was correct. His assessment of her was correct. Boy, she could sing her ass off. Fantastic voice. Loved Anne Marie's voice. Yes. Uh, n- now, James released the album Garden of Love, which featured more ballads than his previous efforts. Uh, that came out in 1980. But also in 1980, because James's album did hit the charts and it sold uh, gold, that means it outperformed another certain album that you might have thought would have done better, one by an established name artist. It was an album called Chances that didn't even chart, surprisingly, by Manfred Mann's Earthbound. And there you have it, folks. Our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earthbound reference of the podcast. <laughs> Has been satisfied. There we yeah, go. Yeah, that, uh, that one only hit Ooh. the charts in Australia for some reason. <laughs> Weird. I'm waiting for Manfred Mann's lawyers to get in touch with us. <laughs> get in touch with us and say, like, okay, yeah, that's enough. Yeah. Guys, could you we get it? Could you please yeah. stop? Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> there's a. Yep. You've crossed. There's there's a, a thin line between running gag and defamation, and you just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at some point, that's going to happen. Um, okay, so 1980. That year is also significant because it returns us to the ongoing theme where Rick is concerned of. He's gone. He's gone. He's gone. <laughs> um. James wrote in his autobiography that in 1980, he was at a party in Hawaii. Sitting across the dinner table from him that night was none other than Salvador Dali. What? Who James said stared at him. Eventually, the artist said, quote, Senor, I am mad about the way you look. Please allow me to sketch you. So he then drew a portrait of James on a napkin. There is literally no telling how much that impromptu bit of art would now be worth. And we'll never know. Draw because, me like one of your French girls. Because James stuffed it in his pocket, forgot it was there, and the next morning, high and still wearing his clothes from the previous night, went for a swim, ruining the drawing. Oh, no! Yeah. So you had an original Dali sketch of you, Rick James, and you jumped, you jumped in the pool and ruined it. Because it was in your pocket and you forgot it was there and you were high. Jeez. Oh my god! What in the crap? Can you imagine how much that would have been worth? I can't know. Well, okay. So, do you know the piece of art that was destroyed, and it was Banksy, and it went through the auction house, and once shredder. it was sold, it went through a shredder, partially. Oh God, no! What? Okay, so. 
people are trying to figure out how it was a setup, but Banksy, who is like this, you know, rogue artist who no one knows the true identity of. Uh, so he had a, I think it was Christie's, Christie's auction house. And, and it was one of those like really super fancy. Uh, one of the big ones, right. Yeah. One of the big ones. And so he had this beautiful piece of art, which I believe was the girl with the balloon. And it went up for auction. And once it was sold, when the gavel banged, all of a sudden you heard this like whirling noise and everybody like focused their attention on the painting. And the, the, the frame itself was a shredder and it put the piece of art partially through the mm -hmm. shredder. Oh my Lord. Yeah, after the money was paid. <laughs> yeah, to be paid. So, so like, but there's like this huge debate about, okay, well, this is how the artist saw the piece of art. Is it worth nothing or is it worth more? <laughs> right. So, so I wonder if that whole like, okay, well, is this Dali of Rick James because it's wet now? Is that? Well, well, though it was because it was drawn on a napkin. Once it got wet, it just turned to mush and it was, like, uh, lost. It, was just, it was gone. There was nothing left of it. Sucks out loud. Um, but that, that reminds me of like, didn't one time NASA accidentally sell a bunch of moon rocks they didn't mean to or something at an auction no. or something? No, I think someone stole them. Or did somebody steal them? As or was it, Neil, no, it was Neil Armstrong's underwear or something that accidentally, <laughs> accidentally stole. You can check I mean, me on that. I, think that, I, think that I, don't, I don't think I've had enough to drink to make that up. I think that was a real thing. How do you accidentally sell your underwear at auction? And I have, I've been drunk before and never has any part of my yeah, that's ended up on the auction block. Yeah, but that's a lot of those. <laughs> It's a lot of booze, dog. And what's the retort to that? We didn't know it was Neil Armstrong's underwear. We thought I mean, right. somebody we else's. Uh, yeah. yeah, we just thought it was a pair of drawers. We just yeah. uh, <laughs> put it up there. We'd see what it would fetch. Mm. Late in 1981, James started working on what would be the biggest commercial hit of his entire career. He would work in the record plant, partly because uh, those were familiar confines, but also because that's where Sly Stone had recorded many of his memorable albums, and that's somebody that James idolized. Rick Sanchez, an engineer, told OK Player that James set up a bedroom in a room adjacent to the studio, and that there was also a jacuzzi and a table set up 24-7 with Quavassier and Hennessy. Nice. Wow. At one point, he apparently worked for 36 consecutive hours, and it's safe to assume that um, James and his band had some help in staying awake. And with studio time being expensive, he made use of every second of the 24-hour sessions that they were booked. And this guy explained that, like, a lot of bands would come in here and they would rent studio space or, or rent the studio, but they were paying for it 24-7 and they'd be in there like six hours, eight hours, ten hours, but there's a lot of hours that they weren't paying for. Or they were paying for, but they were getting no use out of it. So when Rick James would get too exhausted to work, he'd go crash for a bit, but would tell his band to work on guitar or bass parts for songs, and that he'd listen to them when he woke up. They literally worked on this album 24-7 in some form. Not, not everybody all the time, but this part of the band, or just James, or just the producers, or somebody was in there all the time because the studio time was very expensive and James was like, yeah, I mean, we're going we're gonna to get our money's worth out of it. So wow. pretty, pretty smart, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, sometimes they said he might spring out of bed at 2 a.m. and announce to everybody that he had an idea, at which point everybody had to drop what they were doing and make their way into the studio. 
Sanchez said that James often had an audience of friends in the studio, and he seemed to project a different attitude on those occasions. He said on the rare uh, instances in which he was able to talk to James one-on-one, he found him to be surprisingly deep, very introspective, and extremely well-read. The resulting album would be Street Songs, and it would be a bit of a concept album that focused on life on the streets and did so while utilizing elements of funk, rock, R&B, and even new wave. In a retrospective story many years later, James said, quote, My career has always been based on me being as honest as I can, and I'm down with the ghetto, pimps and hoes, dope dealers, getting high, having a good time, and dancing, crying, making love, not wanting to make love, being too high to make love. The police and player haters who called me a N-word because I'm rich and I look good and I got a lot of women and cars. Street Songs is the story of a young brother growing up in the ghetto trying to make his way the best he can. The album would spend 20 weeks at number one on the R&B charts and would hit number three on the Billboard pop charts and would go on to sell three million copies, making it Rick James's biggest album of his career. Mm. It would also have the biggest hits of his career, including one that we obviously have to play if we're doing a series on Rick James. It's a song he said reflected the life he was living at the time with a title that refers to, quote, an uninhibited woman. It's complimentary. It just means being sexually open and not constricted. As far as how how he conceived the song, James said that he was just screwing around with his bass and started playing four descending notes. Boom, 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 over and over. And he blurted out as he did that, she's a very kinky girl. But he thought the whole thing was cheesy and dumb and he was just going to stop. But one of his band members heard it and they said, Rick, cut it. He balked because, again, he thought it was, quote, cheesy and dumb and he didn't even want to. He thought it's just something I'm messing around with. But they convinced him that there was something, quote, hypnotic about the bass lick. So he kept at it. And that bit of uh, improvisation would go on to sell over one million copies. So let's hear the song for which James is best known. From Street Songs, this is Super Freak. Super Freak! Get her off the street, oh girl. She likes the boys in 
love the love of saxophone. Oh yeah, great song, great song. I, I mean, that's that's in the in the pantheon of all time great eighty songs, is it not? I yes. Don't, I don't, yeah. Yes, that yeah, but the music video is horrible. <laughs> it is. I hate it so much. Yep, and we'll actually get into the video here in just in, in just a minute. But the success that James was now enjoying seemed to kick his over the top personality into hyperdrive. <laughs> he, was, he was famous. He was rich, and now he had even more access to drugs and women, and that started to feed an inner beast that James called the, quote, me monster. Rules and laws did not apply to him, so he pretty much did whatever the hell he wanted to do. The Stone City band members were all fairly tall and looked even more imposing in their giant, jacked-up, sparkly boots. James would sometimes instruct them to stand around his table in restaurants to block the view of onlookers, as he snorted mountains of cocaine or laid pipe in willing young ladies on the tabletop. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So he's in like a Denny's, like yep. banging like chicks. He's, an, he's an IHOP. It's like, hey, boys, could y'all, uh, could y'all stand up for a second? I pictured Jeez. a Buca de Beppo, but okay. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. I'm just trying to imagine... Trying to imagine, like, like Rick James has just been through the line at uh, Pizza Inn. He's at the Shoney's. He's got like <laughs> he got salad, a couple of breadsticks, and he's he's waiting on them to bring a barbecue chicken pizza out, and he's got a few minutes to kill. He's got he's at the Sizzler, waiting for them to restock oh, the, the steak. Sizzler. Oh, the Sizzler, red oh, lobster, red or biscuits. <laughs> I get the feeling he didn't patronize any of these restaurants. He's at he's at Quince. He's waiting on his sirloin tips to show. Wait, what was it? Showbiz pizza? Oh no, that goes somewhere else. Now we don't like that. <laughs> right. He's at right, he's at Western Sizzling. Oh. He's at Showbiz Pizza because he just really likes the animatronics. <laughs> I wanna watch the bear. <laughs> <laughs> I like the singing bear, bitch. Oh my goodness. Sit down. <laughs> Bring Rick James some pizza. <laughs> I got 60 tickets. Can I get some tang? I'm a, he's like at the drive through of a checkers. <laughs> uh. Bring Rick James a soda, bitch. <laughs> oh, God. This is where we get sued by yeah, all of the yeah, Do I just want to go ahead and throw Del Taco into the mix while we're at it? Or? Sure. Yeah, why not? Arby's? Sure. Arby's. Arby's, we've got the blow. No. <laughs> Rick James has got the meat, bitch. Gives rolled roast beef a new meeting. Oh, no. <laughs> These curtains are made out of roast beef. Cut all of this. Cut all of it. It's not. It's, it's not making it the episode. It's staying in. <laughs> Hell no, you ain't cutting this. I'm not uh, cutting this. I'm keeping this. I was going to do a long John like, Silver's joke. But I'll pack not, only she not, not only is she not cutting it, she's encouraging it. She's stoking the fire. I am. <laughs> so I guess, I guess there's room for my long John Silver's joke. Yes. <laughs> Think of a long. That is the joke right there. Come here, babe. Oh, for our Midwest folks, what about stacks? With Mr. Delicious. Oh man, Stack, Rick that's James right. and Mr. Delicious did a commercial together. Oh my god. I would watch it. Rax. I that would, was it Rax. Rax, Rax. Yes, Rax. It was a, <sighs> it was Rax with Mr. Delicious. I would watch those commercials for hours. Can you just picture Quiznos but replace the sponge monkeys with Rick James? <laughs> I like the moon. <laughs> Bitch. Bring me here, <laughs> 
I got a Happy Meal for you, clown. Come here, bitch. <laughs> Oh my I regret nothing. I'm sorry. I don't regret. I don't regret anything. I'm, I don't regret. I don't regret anything. Oh. I, mean, I mean, we got to we got to earn the the parental warning we put at the outset of this. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> we, we have certainly done that. Yep. yep. <sighs> okay. In tales from the tour bus, our hero Ruffin <laughs> told that the band on one occasion had just left a show in Florida and was headed for another in Arkansas. They got a phone call from the show promoter in Arkansas, though, warning them that authorities were going to be waiting on them to arrest them. What? Yeah. So they had a fairly primitive satellite set up and a TV on their bus, so they stopped and actually found a press conference where Ruffin said either a prosecutor or the attorney general of Arkansas was saying, quote, we're not going to have Rick James and them spreading their narcotics and marijuana among our children. We're going to arrest all of them. The band laughed, but it seemed way, way less funny when they arrived at the arena. Quote, we get to the GD gig and these MFers and Smokey Bear hats, they were all around us. There must have been a uh, hundred GD police out there, Ruffin said. God. That included snipers on roofs with M16s. Good Lord. Ruffin said uh, Ruffin said a woman who he took to be the local sheriff came to the door of their tour bus and announced that she and other officers were coming aboard. James informed them that would not be happening. Ruffin said the exchange went like this. Quote, you know damn well you can't come on this bus. This is a private effing bus. This is our home. We eat here. We sleep here. We F here. Do you have a warrant? No. Well, then you can't come on this bus. Leave us the F alone because we have work to do. And James shut the bus in the sheriff's face. Rick James, attorney at law. <laughs> yep. The, um, the sheriff approached the band again backstage and announced that she was there to arrest Rick James. The only problem was she didn't know which member of the band was actually James. And each of them announced to her, I'm Rick James. Like Spartacus? Yeah, I am Rick James. Though none of them actually punctuated it with bitch, as near as I can figure. I'm Rick James. I'm Rick James. I feel like Rick Levi Ruffin would have. (laughs) Once James hit the stage, he fired up an enormous joint and said to the crowd, quote, you aren't going to let these cops arrest us, are you? (laughs) And when their response wasn't loud enough, he said, I can't hear you. (laughs) And the crowd announced that no, they would not be letting the cops arrest Rick James for smoking marijuana. (laughs) Ruffin, who didn't even smoke, said that he lit one up that night because, quote, if anybody was getting arrested, all of us were getting arrested. And none of them were. That's really awesome. Yeah. Well, they had no reason yeah. to arrest them. They had nothing to go on. Yeah, they, well, they, they did. They well, did. They, when, when you light a joint on stage in the 70s in Arkansas, 80s, yes. But but, but also, like, you think about um, back in the 60s where Jim Morrison was arrested for inciting a riot. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and for obscenity for maybe or maybe not pulling his junk out. Yeah. That... Red Man's Eric says that he, in fact, did not ever pull it out. Oh, okay. At that concert in Broward County, Florida. I mean, it doesn't shock me. I mean, it wouldn't shock he me. Said, he said, and, and now he, he wasn't within eyesight of Jim. He was behind him. He said, but he, he just knows that Jim didn't pull it out because if he had, he would have tripped over it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was known for a uh, quote yeah. from Ray. Just, just passing, just, I'm just. I'm just the messenger here. Now, um, Rick James's rising star got James uh, the slot as a musical guest on Saturday Night Live, yeah. where he met a young up-and-coming comedian named Eddie Murphy. Nice. But we'll come back to that in part three of the series. Because his brother has something to do with it. 
And, and so does Andy. Both of them do. Andy. Yeah. So it got him on Saturday Night Live. Where his fame could not get him at that point was MTV. The fledgling music network refused to play Super Freak, deeming his video, quote, too vulgar. Oh, come on. Of course, at this point, the network rarely played black artists. And even once they started to do so a bit later, James deemed those uh, getting airplay to be, quote, tokens, speaking directly about Michael Jackson and Prince. Mm -hmm. He demanded that they instruct MTV to stop playing their videos if they wouldn't play those by James, but obviously that didn't happen. So it, we're all familiar with the video for Super Freak now. Yeah. If you look at it through the prism of 1981, I could probably see how at the time there would be a sentiment that like, eh, we're not going to, no, we can't do that. That's a little much. Because it was, it's, it's a very forward sexual video. But it's also a fact that MTV, if they played Black Artists at all, played them at like, 2 a.m. And interestingly, this ties into the last series that we just did. With David Bowie. Because David, David Bowie called them out on this on their own air. <laughs> so can I actually tell you a little story about the video for Super Freak? Because I think I have a unique vantage point on the music video itself. Okay. Because you remember in the 80s, mom took MTV off of the TVs downstairs so that I couldn't watch MTV. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So. Because she saw the video for Funky Cole Medina. Uh, no, it wasn't that she saw the video. It's that I knew all the words to Funky Cole Medina. <laughs> oh, okay. And she got mad at that. Okay. So, you know, whatever. So because of that and because of kind of that musical band that MTV had put into place, Really, I didn't get to see the musical, uh, the music video for Super Freak until roughly college, which would be like 97. And I turned on VH1 and saw the video for Super Freak. And my, my 17 year old head uh, saw this music video as uber cheesy, poorly put together, but interestingly edited. <laughs> but I never found it even as a feminist, like I'm sure you guys understand I am, uh, I never saw it as sexual, exploitative, or anything like that. I saw it as a, a push to try to be edgy, but it wasn't exactly edgy. And I guess that's because after I had experienced everything that I had up to that point, this music video wasn't like the nastiest thing I'd seen <laughs> because I had been aware that Madonna existed. Right, and but you, but that by the time you were watching it, it was also what sixteen or seventeen years old. Yeah, roughly. So tastes and standards and mores had changed quite a bit. Yeah, because well, MTV wouldn't play. Um, uh, what was it? Well, Justify My Love, right? They wouldn't play any Madonna until after nine p.m. at right. a point. And then Express Yourself had to that be pushed nice. a little bit, I think. But Justify My Love was definitely, that was because, the one that was. Well, Like a Prayer, too. Yeah, yeah Like a Prayer, holy crap. Uh, and then I remember when mom worked at the radio station, they wouldn't let her play George Michael until after 9 p.m. There were certain, once I started working in radio, yeah, there were certain songs you didn't play after a particular time. Do you, okay, hey, this has nothing to do with uh, Rick James at all, but would you like a fun fact? Fun fact. When I Want Your Sex by George Michael was climbing the charts, Casey Kasem never once said the title. Oh, would he say like the newest song from George Michael? From George Michael, yep. Wow. Oh, which which had to be a bitch for Casey because it got to number one and stayed on the charts a really long time. Seemed <laughs> 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 to get creative like, how to avoid the title. <laughs> but uh, it was always so funny to listen to 
Casey Kasem as time went on. Um, and it's like, now here's the two live crew with their new one, Be So Horny. I mean, like, it's just I- hearing Casey say stuff like that. Yep. It was just hysterically funny. And the whole time we've been having this discussion, now all I can think about is Rick James sitting at like an olive garden. Where are my <laughs> breadsticks, bitch? Where's my endless soup and salad? <laughs> I like my salad tossed. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. I am not, I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry, rock and roll heaven. <laughs> listeners Uh, okay continue okay all right one other perk of rick james's fame was that he and his band received vip treatment at the infamous studio 54 yeah the new york landmark was on its second owner at this point in mark fleischman who became friends with james in fact the two shared a birthday and had at least one joint celebration at the club. Flashman said he had never seen anyone party as hard as James, as he would rage for more than a day at a time, snorting giant rails of blow straight off the bar and imbibing unholy amounts of alcohol. (laughs) Now, Studio 54 is likely a place that Rick James said uh, would have felt right at home, since the balconies of that club featured rubber floors, making it very easy for custodians to squeegee off the love juice or whatever you want to call it um there was sex there was drugs there was booze and james and his band lapped it all up ruffin said they often went to the third floor which is (laughs) oh my god which is where quote all the effing and shit went on (laughs) he said people were having sex in their ears wait what what Oh no! Oh, Ruffin is a Ruffin's a freaking rock star. Yeah. Um, he said it. He said that up there, people literally were having sex in their ears. It was men on women, women on women, men on men, group scenes, pretty much anything that you can imagine involving people and penises and vaginas was just happening all up in there <laughs> on the third floor. Wow. On one occasion, a woman who he only described as quote, a very famous, very wealthy white model strode in, pointed at him and announced, quote, I want the black one. Huh. Okay. Quote, what? What is this? If in slavery times or some shit up in this bitch, rather than saying that. (laughs) At that point, justifiably, I would say, given what the woman said, Ruffin took his junk out of his pants and sprinkled some junk on the tip of it and instructed her to remove said substance orally. And ah, she did. Oh my. Um, um, There's a lot going on here. See, I've, watched, I've watched a couple documentaries on Studio 54 and I- I'm I in Dunkin' Donuts. Where are my munchkins, bitch? God, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to Josh's mom, to Mike's mom, and to my mom. Oh, God. Were you saying something? I'm sorry. No, I'm good. Go ahead. All right. Well, at that point, he, as I told you, he did what he did and that she obliged his wishes. 1981 and cocaine also overlap for Rick James in another way, and that is in the worst way possible. 
sometime in 1981, Rick freebased the substance for the very first time. He said, quote, when it hit that first time, sirens went off, rockets were launched. I was sent reeling through space. At the time, the physical exhilaration of smoking coke in pure form overpowered any semblance of sense that I ever possessed. The meme monster was about to take full control, and in every sense, for Rick James, there was darkness to come. And that's all I've got for today. Okay. <laughs> Thank the Lord. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's a journey. That's definitely a journey. Yeah. So, um, again, this this is basically the same discussion point that we had last time. But so we've heard a lot of really ridiculous, outlandish stories involving a wide array of far-flung, crazy celebrities. What's been your favorite? I don't have one. I still don't think anything tops uh, Rick James and Jim Morrison uh, tripping balls on acid uh, on bumper cars. I, I think. I, he and Steven Tyler snorting booger sugar That's off a good a one. Bowie knife is pretty close. Here's here's my problem. Here's yeah. my problem, okay? At no point does it de-escalate. So you start the episode off talking about Steven Tyler and you end with, you know, someone getting toot snorted off their mushroom tip. Um I got <laughs> I got nothing. I it's like a kaleidoscope. I can't pinpoint that one moment where it was like Oh, that. I like that. I guess if I have to pick one, I like, well, like I did last week, I picked the weird one where he did the, the, the date change. I guess it would be like, I have the utmost respect for police officers. I will say that. But honestly, he was in the right. They didn't have a warrant to come on to it. Nor at that point that they really have any probable cause necessarily. Well, also, yeah, because he was coming into the state. So they didn't have a precedent set up that they had had him they had any evidence of it being on there and you have to have probable cause so you know what like i'm on the side of rick Ch- okay god I, uh, I need i need therapy like literally what i just said i'm on rick james's side when it comes to that because you have to have evidence and probable cause to be able to do that and they didn't have that so yeah i get i'm gonna pick the, the side where he stood up to the cops because like dude yeah yeah because that because that was a total now he he famously frequently smoked marijuana on stage, but but that's not. But just because he had done it previously doesn't mean you have the right to come onto his bus and look for drugs. But also, you know that a lot of times performers will fake this stuff. You can actually have herbal cigarettes rolled up. Sure. Well, like if you go back to the um the Eddie Van Halen series, that there were bands inspired by Van Halen actually really drinking Jack Daniels straight out of the bottle on stage, who would drink tea. Yeah, it's a yeah. nice tea. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they would drink tea out of Jack Daniels bottles to look badass and to look like Van Halen. The Rat Pack was doing that too. Yeah, you know, he uh, Dean Dean actually had tea in his glass, but would drink it and act drunk. Right, and tea like, or tea or apple <laughs> apple juice or tea frequently. Yes, he sure did. So that is uh, the end of part two. We'll wrap this one up uh, with part three next time, and I, I'll just go ahead and tell you if. So we've, we've discussed some crazy stuff so far and some uh, a few things that have been kind of disturbing. They don't come close to what is to come. Okay, and I will I will say this right now. Again, with every episode, I'm not going to say this every single episode, but I feel like it needs to be said part and parcel to these this these two episodes. We can't cover everything with the, when it comes to these artists, but sure. also we've had a lot more laughs over these two episodes than we have with 
most of our Venus schnitzel bitches with with most of our subjects like we don't usually have this much fun recording right. podcast we, but we can't will... imagine rick we can't imagine rick james taking his pants off in front of a, a, a sparrows at a food court somewhere yeah so here's the thing i would like to say that we absolutely respect human life here but we have we've landed on someone that there's a lot of fun and humor when talking about them so please don't think that we're being disrespectful is genuinely we love these stories and it's kind of nice to have a break from the series because right because because the last episode was or the last series we did was there's i mean there was some there was levity and comedy and stuff but it's it, there's a lot of sad stuff too same with the series before that and then the series before that this is just this has just been slap nuts bonkers from the from the jump <laughs> it's just, it's just, yeah. and please know we do respect him we respect his life and we respect oh, sure. his legacy that's why my brother chose him is because he wanted to honor him. We don't right. pick people that we dislike. We pick people that we, we you know, that are interesting or, or that have interesting lives. And we do like, I mean, I, I like a lot of Rick James music. Um, it's hard. I don't know how you could listen to some of what we played so far and not like it, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, but we're just, yeah, this, this has been fun. Things take a tad more bit of a dark turn, part three, but we will get there next time. We will have one more song we'll go out with here. Another favorite of Rick James's from uh, the Street Songs album, but I think LD will uh, kick our socials out before we do that. Yeah, and thank you for listening to this episode of Giggling Hillbillies. <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week with part three of Rick James. And if you think that we're doing an amazing job and you'd like to give us money for that, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook page is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at Rock and Roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. And please, please, guys, make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at PantheonPodcast.com or wherever you find awesome podcasts. And uh, I would just like to say a personal thank you for everybody who checked in this week. Will, would you like to say goodbye? I would, and I realized we do need to go back and discuss a another music musical figure who passed away in the last week. Oh no! I yes. I did not see this. And that was Les McEwen of the Bay City the Rollers. The Bay City Rollers. The uh, Bay City Rollers. Who unfortunately passed Kid. away. Oh, that's. Uh, I don't know how we missed that. Yeah. 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 So we uh, got that a, one. Yeah. Rest in peace. Behind people. Glass Tiger and Manfred Mann's Earth Band, they're probably the one, the band we've mentioned the most, maybe, other than uh, maybe Petula Clark. Petula Clark. Petula Clark. They're close. Yeah. They're, they're definitely a definitely a close band. They're, they're right up there. Yeah. Yeah. Close, close third, right up there. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, Travis, would you like to take us out? Imagine being at Red Panda. Where, where's my Kung Pao chicken, bitches? This is a good or bad impression of Rick James. It's a a fair impression of Dave Chappelle's impression of Of Rick James. James. It's what I think think we're actually doing. Okay, got it. Got it. Bye, Bye, everybody. So well, what song are we going out with? All right, we're uh, going to check out of uh, part two of uh, Rick James. We got one more part to come. But this is uh, another big hit from the uh, Street Songs album. It's Rick James and Give It To Me Baby.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 